Let us pray as we gather to hear the word of God once again this morning. Living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves again this day to you to hear the only word which is worthy of authority, the only word which is worthy of glory, the only word which is worthy of submitting ourselves to and sitting under, the living, active word of God, breathed out by your spirit, which we consider and meditate on today. So be with us through your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we humbly sit under your word, that we may come to know you more and serve you with greater diligence and fruitfulness and faithfulness. To your glory and our joy in you. Amen. Amen. It's good to be with you this morning again as we start a five-week series on the biblical book of Haggai. Now, when I, when I tell people we're going to spend five weeks on Haggai, there's some people that know the book and they're like, that's a two-chapter book. How did you get that approved? And I just want to remind everybody, here's my justification. There was another preacher back in the 50s, a Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he decided to preach from the book of Romans in Great Britain for 12 and a half years. At a click of 375 sermons. We're just going to do the five for Haggai. But I just wanted to give We're going at light speed compared to Lloyd-Jones. When you bring up the book Haggai, some people will go, Ah, oh, that's really interesting. I've heard sermon series on Hosea and Micah and Malachi. I haven't heard one on Haggai before. Really interested to do that. And then other times people will say, Haggai. Interesting. Interesting. The double interesting whenever you hear that, right? They're not really interested. They're just like, what is Haggai? When was Haggai? Where in my Bible can I locate Haggai? It must be somewhere in the middle there because I don't usually read that, but that's just a guess. No worries. I can tell you where it is. If you've got one of the blue Bibles, it's page 791. 791. Right after Zephaniah, of course. You already knew that. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 today. So what about this book, this mysterious book, speaks to us today? A new word, a fresh word that makes as much sense as it did then now. Well, in order to understand that, we have to get a little bit of background on the book. You see, Haggai prophesied in 520 B.C. And at this point... The people of God had been back from exile for over a decade. Earlier, the Persian king Cyrus, and then following him, his successor Darius, had conquered Babylon, who had taken Israel into exile so many years ago, and freed the Jews, and even sent them back to the land with the ability to rebuild the temple. And they even gave them materials to rebuild the temple with. But as you read through Haggai, which I'd encourage you to do over the next couple of weeks, some of the two chapters. As you read through Haggai, you'll see that as soon as the people get into the land, they run into some problems. Work on the temple pauses almost immediately. In fact, it pauses for a period of 16 years. A mere foundation is laid. 
collecting dust while the people of God try to satisfy themselves on the things of dust rather than on the things of God. You see, God's people put God's house on hiatus while they tried to get their own houses in order. But God, as he usually does, had different plans. And in their story, we discover an abiding biblical truth, namely, that our lives will never be in order. Our houses will never be in order unless they are first ordered around God. As our Lord Jesus Christ said in the Gospels, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. So we'll begin today this series by looking first at two reasons. Why would they do this? Why would they pause construction on the temple when they had been given the ability to do that, freed from exile? And there's two real reasons we're going to look at. The first is societal pressures, socio-political, cultural pressures on Israel. And the second was more of like a soul-level, spiritual problem, a longing for the comfort of home. So we're going to look at the first four verses as we ask, how was there a socio-political problem happening here. What does it say in verse 2? Let's start there. The people of God were continually saying, the time has not yet come to build the Lord's house. And into this situation, two verses later in verse 4, another prophecy comes. And the Lord says this, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Do you see the emphasis there? Do you see the, the contrast there? As able to be seen in the English as it is in the original Hebrew, you, yourselves, your, this house. The emphasis on the people of God seeking earthly comfort even in the absence of an abiding divine presence is really what is behind Haggai for the whole book. And we'll spend several weeks unpacking that. Really, the people are strengthened by their own strength. God's presence literally remains a ruin, testifying to a past presence which is no longer perceived to be needed, necessary, no longer needing to be a priority for God's people. And it's not just an eyesore. As one commentator noted, a decaying temple... Well, that signifies a decaying relationship. You see, the real problem in Haggai is not a delay in mere architecture. It's the people's indifference to God's presence. But there is a temptation when we start to get into this sort of inquiry with the Bible. We look at Israel and we reckon that they're going to serve as a foil for our better behavior. Have you ever done this? Israel is doing it wrongly and we're going to do it rightly. Better. We're going to be better. That's how we'll learn. Don't be like Israel is the moral of the story. Focus less on myself. Start doing more religious stuff unlike Israel. But friends, that way of reading the Old Testament is completely off base. God in the New Testament doesn't cancel Israel. He brings Israel to its completion and climax in Jesus. Israel's not meant to function as a foil, but as a mirror. We're not meant to look down at Israel as we exalt ourselves in our good behavior. 
We're meant to look into Israel and see ourselves. We're not other than Israel. We're part of it. The problems common to Israel are problems common to all human beings, including us. It says in Romans chapter 11 that we, the Gentiles, have been grafted in to the olive tree. What is the olive tree? The very people of God, Israel. So what I want to suggest, friends, is today, instead of setting up ourselves over against Israel, could we ask, what caused God's people way back then, of whom we are a part today, to neglect God's house? To focus only on building their own houses. And that's where we get into these two reasons. Sociopolitical and spiritual. But sociopolitical, you say, where is the sociopolitical aspect? I see it nowhere here, John. I shall show you. But it's not actually in Haggai. It's in the book of Ezra. Sometimes, friends, when a passage is unclear. What do we do? We just rip that passage out and don't deal with it anymore? No, when a passage is unclear in one part of scripture. We read it in the light of other scripture and then suddenly it starts to become clear scripture speaks with a coherence it's authored by one spiritual author namely God and scripture speaks with one voice not against each other but in communion and coherence with everything that it says elsewhere returning to the land was a real blessing to the people don't get me wrong but that didn't mean it was easy so when you, if you have your, your Bible and you want to turn to Ezra, you can, but I'll read it for you. It's Ezra 4.4. 4. Because if you lose Haggai, it's so short, you might not find it again. <laughs> Ezra says this in 4 verse 4. Hear the word of God. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. It's the people of God. And made them afraid to build. And bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus the king of Persia remember we mentioned him before even until the reign of Darius the king of Persia so this gives us the historical background that Haggai assumes and what it shows us is that in returning to the land Israel is totally helpless and open to the pressures of social and cultural hostile circumstances and that helps us not to overplay the case of, oh, Israel just wanted comfort. That's part of it, but not the whole picture. There were real variables and factors weighing down that caused them to pause the temple's construction. And I wonder, I wonder when you look, not just at the returning Jewish exiles, but at yourself through them, what areas of your life might you be tempted to say, like they did then, the time has not yet come to build. Now, for us, it's probably not temples. Most of us aren't building temples every day, hopefully. And, and it's not even building churches as good as a church is, because a church is not a temple. You are the temple. And you come into the building. It only becomes a temple when there's people in there. The presence of God does not exist where the people of God are absent in worshiping him. The presence of God for the people of God exists as a temple together. So we're not building temples. So what is it? I'd like to suggest that the phrase, the time has not yet come, would probably refer less to physical building projects and more for us to the uninhibited, courageous proclamation of the gospel. 
We live in a culture where there's a right time and a right place to talk about religion. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to do that in day-to-day conversation. Say the cultural elites and the broader culture. And there is a pressure on us to privatize our religion, to keep it in your paneled house, please, at your address, out of my orbit, where it might bother me or shake me or actually challenge me. And Haggai would implore us in the midst of a culture of pervasive pluralism and endless options that the authority of the Word of God and the faithfulness to the Word of God is what the church needs most and what the society needs most as well. What else do we have to offer as the church except for the Word of God written, perfect, inspired, infallible, able to cause you to be born again to a living hope? And yet, does the culture want us to proclaim that openly? Sometimes we're allowed to do it, but other times it's just plain rude and you shouldn't do it. That's how we're made to feel. Keep it in your paneled house. Notice what verse 1 says. It says that the word of the Lord went out to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel. Here we go with the names. The governor of Judah. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The gospel went out to the governor and to the high priest. To the sanctuary, yes, but also to the city. And you will be pressured, my friends, if you already haven't, to restrict your gospel activity to the allocated safe spaces for spiritual discourse appointed by the same kinds of powers and the cultural forces that were at work in the first century. Keep it in your house, you'll be told. And if you're not told that, you'll come to understand that. But a gospel that only echoes forth in the halls of our sanctuaries and that fails to resound outward to the avenues and the institutions, the individuals who need it so badly in our cities, well, that gospel will soon become an echo chamber. The church is not called to be an echo chamber. The church is called to be an amplifier through which what is preached here doesn't end on the sidewalk but goes straight into the neighborhoods, into the cities, and into the people who need it most. When we talk about evangelism, people get really nervous. People get really nervous. Because it's, it's kind of a weird thing to do in this culture. It makes you a bit uncomfortable. Some of you have the gift of evangelism, you would say, and others of us just feel like we're going to be about as evangelistically effective as a Mr. Bean rather than a Billy Graham. We just don't have any sense that we're going to be good at it. And I think, let me speak from my own experience, which may or may not overlap with yours. Before I was a Christian, I used to get evangelized a lot in Boston, Massachusetts on the MBTA, quite probably the worst train system in the world. Um, And I used to take the blue line and then switch to the green line. And on the blue line, there would always be people who I I suppose were religious. I, I don't know what they were. But it seemed to me like they had dropped out of the twilight zone directly into the train sitting right next to me. I just didn't understand these people. I didn't see myself in them. I just had a look in their eye, right? Literally, you'd be sitting there on the train and you'd feel like someone like staring at you. You ever had that happen? It's a really weird feeling. You shouldn't do that. Don't evangelize like that. But that's how it was evangelized all the time. And if you dared look, boom. Do you know Jesus? 
And I'd be like, I don't, but if you do, I'm not sure I want to. And then I got saved and I started listening to Christian radio, watching Christian TV, which is hit or miss. And I'd see all these people who seemed to me to be like really good at evangelism. Just awesome at it. It's like I Ray Comfort, he'd be going on the streets on soapboxes and, you know, asking like these, these college guys who just got out of a frat party. Let me ask you something. Have you ever sinned? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know, man, I guess. Have you ever stolen anything? Even in elementary school? And they'd be like, yeah, pencil, I think. And he'd be like, well, then you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart, and you'll find your lake of fire when you go. <laughs> and I was like, you don't understand. I can't, I'm, I'm not from New Zealand. I can't pull that off, you know. He's got, a, he's got a real advantage. And so part of it was I didn't see myself and what I thought an evangelist was. And so I can't do evangelism because it's not my personality. But evangelism isn't about a personality. Evangelism isn't even about only having long-term friendships, although those are good where we get to share the gospel. I want to suggest that one way we can speak to the sociopolitical and cultural powers of the day and not take our gospel away into our paneled houses in the time of Haggai is to make evangelism an everyday normal event. Normal being a relative word, I guess. I'll give you an example of how this has worked out for me, and maybe this will be helpful for you, and then challenge you a bit here. I've always got, it seems to me, every week, two to three, maybe sometimes four service people coming to my house every week. Usually it's roofers, because our roof is apparently terrible. Um, things are falling off, there's mold, it's dangerous, whatever. Um, this is what they tell you, and then they'll go through the whole spiel. If it's not the roofers, it's the pest companies. And the pest companies, I don't know if there really are black widow spiders in Virginia. But when I start to tell them, like, I don't want your service, they go, well, there are the black widows. And I'm like, you didn't understand. I lived in Australia. Okay. Snakes were in my house. I can handle anything. I do all things. All right. Um, I used to just tell them, look, I rent. I can't touch the roof. I can't, you know, I can't do anything about it. See you later. And then I started thinking, wait a minute. These guys who are trying to sell me a product that I don't want have more courage than me to come straight up to my door and tell me about something that I don't even care about. And yet I don't have the courage to speak a simple word to them. And so now my policy is whenever you come to my door, you're getting an invitation to this door. And I got to tell you, you don't want to do it in a boisterous way. You don't want to be belligerent or weird about it. But I had a guy come. I said, look, we don't need your roof. But I'd like to invite you now. Thank you for that invitation. I go to a church, that big church, that white church, going towards D.C. It's called the Falls Church Anglican. I don't know if you have a church. I don't know if you care about religion. But you should come to that church. Is that weird? Kind of. <laughs> Who cares? Why wouldn't I do that? Right? He might not like me. Who cares? He, he might think I'm weird. He's right. He might even get mad. Maybe. Or maybe he'll get saved. Maybe he'll come to know Jesus. By not sharing the gospel with someone who's zealous about roofs and shares that with me, I'm saying there might be other ways. There might be other paths that are more beneficial to your spiritual good than the gospel of Jesus Christ. No. Take the gospel out of your paneled house and get to work with Jesus. And what that looks like to you will look different than it looks like to me. But I want to invite you to take courage 
in doing that. And oftentimes I'll give a quick reason. I'll be like, look, I know people don't really follow religion in this culture, but for me, the gospel gives me the purpose of life. I, it gives me the truth that I can't find anywhere else, and you should come hear about it. Right? And again, what's the worst thing that can happen? He says, well, that makes me mad. It's like, well, at least something happened, you know? It's going to be interesting. And, and imagine if we were doing that in large numbers, thousands of us, just anyone we meet, when we're standing crossing the street and we're doing this, we're like, come to this church. I don't know if you're looking for a church, but I just feel compelled to invite you to church and tell you a little bit about that. I mean, the thousands and thousands of people that will hear the gospel that haven't yet. I mean, you just make it to one roofer that gets saved. And imagine all the discounts we'll start to get on roofing. <laughs> no, I'm just messing around. But I do need a new roof. But I don't own the house, so it's not my problem. <laughs> one way to combat these social political pressures then is to take courage and evangelize. Take courage. Be daring. Be daring for the gospel. The next one is this longing for home that we sense when it says the people were building houses for themselves when God's house wasn't built. What's up with that? It says they were living in paneled houses. And Haggai's point is less to talk about the literal construction of the houses, and he's more concerned to express the comfort that happens and the comfort that is sought when a house becomes a home. Many of you people have lived in many houses. They become homes. If, you ever, if you're not from the area, someone will say, what is home to you? And if you're anything like me, and this is a transient area, you go, I don't know. I mean, now it's here. Five years ago it was Australia. They all became home. A house becomes a home. It's not just a mailing address with a basement and bedrooms and all this. A home, you know, stands for stability. Stands for safety and constancy. And when the Jews were in exile in Babylon, they even sang about home in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They wanted to go home. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captives required of us a song. Our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. This is their captors saying that. And it says, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The Jewish people were not indifferent to home. We're not indifferent to home. God is not indifferent to home. He's not saying, I hope you have a terribly uncomfortable life as long as you go to church. No, 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 no. We know this deep down, right? What happens when a kid falls at the park and they scrape their knee or you're making it to hour seven of your epic road trip and they've just lost all the will to be in the car? What do they say? Where do they want to go? I want to go home. Something deep in the human heart. And we know as adults what they mean. We know because when we go to other people's house and they say to us, make yourself at home, you don't then go and rearrange the person's living room to be like the spitting image of what yours was, hopefully. No, they, the person means make yourself as comfortable and as relaxed, just like you do at your own home. When you have a room or an office that's called homey, it means it's inviting. When someone says, I feel right at home in this job or right at home in this church, they mean, I feel like I belong and can relax. God is not angry that the people desire to relax and experience home. God 
is trying to tell his people to, to establish a home apart from the God who wants to make a home in your heart is to miss the glory and power of the gospel. Everything else falls apart eventually, but not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 5 through 7. Haggai talks about the end result of what happens when sociopolitical pressures, when spiritual pressures all come together to take this beautiful word that the world so desperately needs and says, that belongs in your zip code behind your fence and it shan't ever come out unless we say so. But that's not what God says. Listen to what Haggai says here. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In the Hebrew, it's even like, look at your hearts. It's not just like, think intellectually about the current situation and write a report about it. Deeply examine your hearts. You have sown much, but you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You understand what he's talking about? He's not talking about a God who hates people and makes their life miserable. He's talking about the end result of mere subsistence when you are made for eternal glory. Satisfaction does not come from mere subsistence. It's like money falling out of your bag. Satisfaction comes from the glory and presence and weightiness and magnitude and wonder of God alone. I mean, imagine if the Heidelberg Catechism, which when it asks, what is my only comfort in life and death? Imagine if instead of Jesus Christ or the gospel, it answered, my relaxing state-of-the-art kitchen. A kitchen gospel, a kitchen comfort gospel instead of a christ centered comfort gospel it makes no sense and yet we do it all the time we gather we collect we cultivate home and sometimes god is is left out of the picture but if you read verses five through seven with the rest of the biblical scope of this pattern you'll see that in micah six we hear the same thing you shall eat but not be satisfied you shall sow but not reap you will tread grapes but not drink wine same thing in Leviticus 26, 26. You'll eat and you'll not be satisfied. But when the people of God keep the covenant of God in Deuteronomy 6, verse 11, then the people eat and the people are satisfied. If you're hearing this with Jewish ears at the time, what you're hearing is what we need is just not a completed architecture project. What we need is the covenant blessings rather than the covenant curses what we need is for the kingdom of God to go out through us and so as we conclude a sermon like this it's you want to be really careful because it's easy to come to the end and we live in DC and it's a type of culture where we're like what is my to-do list like we started off saying we're not going to do that but we might end up doing that what is my well I'm going to see if I'm having too much comfort and I'm going to stop being comfortable, right? I'm, I'm going to evangelize every roofer in Northern Virginia and turn them into a bona fide born-again Christian. I, 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 I must, me. Right? That's to make the same mistake that our forefathers made when they imbibed from the poisonous drink of saying, this is about me rather than about God. It's not that we don't want to change behavior, but it's just 
about a lot more than that. It's about the God who acted in your behalf despite your inability to please him through your behavior. You might get to the end of this message and hear a message of law rather than a message of gospel. You say, when I'm asked to evangelize, when I'm asked to do these things and examine myself, I don't feel more grace, I feel more guilt. But Haggai says in chapter 2, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The gospel calls us not to greater guilt, but to greater glory. And the glory of the gospel is displayed in the victory of the empty tomb, not in the vanity of the fully filled private paneled house. The one is doomed to decay. As good as it is, it won't last. But the other has already defeated death and will last forever. So you may lament as you hear this. You may say, I wasted so much time. Maybe you're a teenager and your teenage years are almost over and you're saying, I looked for comfort within myself. I couldn't find it. I felt so lost. Man, I wish I had known that God would have been there. God would have been there. And in the darkest moments of your 20s and 30s when you're trying to figure things out and you don't understand and things aren't working like you thought that they would and you're losing control and it isn't working out like you want it to. You might be tempted to say, I'm so foolish. How many years I've wasted? He could have been there, but I decided to go it alone. Through sickness and success, he wasn't there. Through births and burials, he wasn't there. I wish he had been. I wish he had been there. I wish he were here right now. And into the darkest night of the depths of your soul, please hear the gospel say, God is there through all of those seasons. God was not absent when you lost the job. God was not absent when you wept alone. God was not absent when you felt worthless and weak and ashamed. God was there. He was ignored, but he was not absent. He was calling you to himself to grab on to the truth of the gospel that wins over all these momentary failures. Jesus wins the victory. My friends, I heard a story about a church who left a building. When that happened, it wasn't a church leaving a temple. It was a temple moving from one building to a gym and a bunch of other places for seven years. Have you heard this story? I thought so. And then that temple moved into a new building. And when we arrived in this beautiful, amazing building this morning, we didn't rock up into a temple. It wasn't a temple until you came here. Because it says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you, you are God's temple? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So take courage, my friends. God is for you. God is with you. God dwells in you. 
You were built for greater glory than the temporary comforts of a paneled house. Even the glorious presence of God himself. And so I leave you with scripture from Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. To send you out into that glory. To make it resound into the city from the sanctuary. Where God says this. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Let us pray. Lord God, you built a house for greater glory when the second temple went up. And then when that temple was destroyed, our Savior said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then he breathed the Holy Spirit upon his church and he said, you are that temple. And so wherever we are and whatever season you put us in, and whatever circumstances we have to deal with, we pray that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would transform the world so that it shows your glory back to you. We were built for it. Let us live into it. In Jesus' name, amen.